Today we're finishing up our series titled Messy. The name of the series is Messy. Loving others isn't easy. And uh, the reason this series is titled Messy is because relationships are messy. Loving others isn't easy uh, because relationships are messy. But in spite of that, what we're looking at is that God wants us to step into the mess and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So today I want to talk to you about how to reach your neighbor. We've spoken about how to treat your neighbor, how to love your neighbor. Today we want to talk about how to reach your neighbor. Well, today is Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Holy Week or, or Passion Week. Palm Sunday is known primarily for being the day in which Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We refer to it as Palm Sunday because the Bible says that as Jesus made his way into the, into the city, people lined the streets and they waved palm branches and some of them laid palm branches on the road as Jesus uh, entered the city that day. But there was more to Palm Sunday, as great as event as, as uh, the entry was, the triumphal entries, you know it. There was more to Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday, than Jesus entering to the city. Because... Uh, Jesus did a couple of other things. One is that uh, he went into the city, he went into the temple, he looked around, didn't do anything. He went back to the temple a couple days later and he drove out the money changers and the, the people who were exploiting, the men who were exploiting the poor people, and he drove them out. He did that twice in his ministry, once at the beginning of his ministry, and then he did it here at the end. But another thing that happened that is, that is of significance on that Palm Sunday and that's what I want to talk to you about today, is that that is the day that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. We're going to read about this in Luke 19. If you turn with me to Luke 19, beginning with verse 41. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So while the city celebrated, this is a one-man parade, Jesus coming in, recognizing him as a Messiah, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As they celebrated this, Jesus had a burden which caused him to weep over the city. You can hear the sadness in his words. I mean, he, he was actually in tears here. He wept. This is not symbolic. This is... Literal. He, he literally wept over the city. But why was he crying over Jerusalem? And by the way, this was not the first time that he lamented over Jerusalem. If you go with me to Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus said this. And, and by the way, he said these words that we're about to read. In the middle of, of a, a teaching and prophesying over judgment that was going to come, to Jerusalem. So he's prophesying this terrible judgment that is going to come over Jerusalem. In the middle of that, he says this in Luke 13, 34. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets 
and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. So when he when he says Jerusalem twice, you know, he, he's feeling the, the passion here. He's speaking these words with deep passion and deep compassion for people that were rejecting him. They were rejecting him as Messiah. And yet, though he was speaking the, the, the words of judgment that, that was to come and did come to Jerusalem. Yet in the middle of that, he inserts these words filled with compassion. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I so wanted to, I so longed to gather you to myself, to protect you like a, like a hand gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now what I find interesting and, and quite frankly challenging for me is that Jesus was able to speak judgment against Jerusalem for their sins while at the same time maintaining a tender heart and maintaining compassion and, and sorrow for their spiritual condition. So he's got two things going on. He, he's speaking the judgment that, that justice requires but he's also balancing that out with compassion, with love, with sorrow for their spiritual condition. It just seems to me that his demand for justice and his demand for judgment for sin did nothing to diminish his love and his compassion for the sinners. He always loved those that rejected him. He went uh, as, as far as loving them to the end. You know, these people rejected him, they, they, they killed him, and yet he loved them to the end. And that's who Jesus is, that's who, that's who God is. Paul says to the Romans, Paul writes to the Romans about the, the kindness and the sternness of God. The kindness and the sternness of God. There's, there's this balance thing, this balancing act that God does that I think, quite frankly, we struggle with. We struggle with the tension between those two things. We struggle with the tension between, on the one hand, we want justice to be done. We see people in our world who reject God, who are vulgar, who are ungodly, and we want justice to be done. But on the other hand, we know we should love the sinner. We just struggle to, to do it. So this creates a tension within us. Jesus didn't feel this tension. Now we feel it. We throw out the, the platitudes like hate the sin but love the sinner. But Jesus really did hate the sin and love the sinner. The truth is that we have a much easier time hating the sin and a harder time loving the sinner. But Jesus is teaching us something here. He's teaching us something here. In the midst of speaking judgment against, against those that rejected him, notice how he loves the sinner. He feels no conflict between the judgment that, that justice requires and the love for sinners. There's no dichotomy. These two things aren't mutually exclusive. Sin must be judged. But he still longs to gather people to himself, he says, as a hand gathers her chicks to protect them. And he, he wept for those who were rejecting him. And today he weeps for those who are lost for those who reject him today. So the question that this raises in my mind is, when have I wept for my lost friends? When have you wept for your lost friends? 
during this six weeks of Easter campaign that we have here as we spend time preparing for the celebration of the resurrection. I've asked you to pray, and I've prayed for the service, and I've prayed for my friends, those that that I have invited and want to invite others that I haven't yet, that I would like to do that this week. But have we wept for their spiritual condition? Are we that invested in what we want God to do in their lives that we, like Jesus, feel sorrow for their spiritual condition and, and pray for them with tears? When have you cried out to God to save your friends? When have you said, how I long to see you come to Christ? How I long, my greatest desire, my heart's desire is to see you come to Christ. You know, that was uh, what the Apostle Paul prayed. In fact, you're going to find this hard to believe what the Apostle Paul said. I mean, I'm going to show it to you in the Bible. Otherwise, you may not believe that he actually said this. His greatest desire was to see his fellow Jews saved. So here's what he said in Romans 9, Romans 9, 2 and 3. He said this, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. Why is that, Paul? Why the bitter sorrow and unending grief? He says, for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. And then look at this. He says, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Can you believe that? He said, I'd be willing to be separated from God to let the curse fall on me if, if, if that meant that my fellow brothers and sisters would be saved. Now that is passion for the lost and that is compassion for their spiritual condition. Can we pray that? Lord, I'd be willing. If it meant me being lost for eternity, I'd be willing for that to happen as long as my friends come to know you, as long as my family that doesn't serve you, as long as they come to know you, I'd be willing for that. Wow, what a passion for the lost he had. And how we lack that. And, and we can be so cold and so unfeeling toward the lost that Paul was just passionate about reaching them. How, how is that possible? How could Paul do that? And I think the answer is that he loved the lost with the same love with which Jesus loved the lost. Jesus wept for the future of the Jews that had rejected him. Jesus wept because he wanted to gather them and they wouldn't come. And Paul's heart likewise was filled with grief and with sorrow for his fellow Jews because they were yet unsaved. So we see that Paul is loving his fellow Jews with the same love that, that Jesus spoke, same compassion with which, which uh, Jesus spoke on that day, that first Palm Sunday. The point is this. The point is that it takes God's love in us and through us to help us love those that have rejected God and perhaps in turn have rejected us. And maybe there's the really... Uh, the reason why we have a hard time loving those that reject God. Because we, we feel like it's a rejection of our faith and our beliefs. But it takes God's love in us and through us to help us love those that have rejected God. Now Paul wrote, let's continue reading what, what Paul wrote here. Because I mean this, this grips me when I read what he said, what he wrote. That he would say that. 
He wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ compels us because we believe that Jesus died for everybody. He didn't just die for us. He died for people out there that, yes, that have rejected him and that right now are living a life as if God didn't exist. He died for them too. So Paul says that knowledge that Jesus died for everybody compels us. Now, what does the word compel mean? To compel means to drive. It drives us. It means to control. Christ's love controls us. But what are we compelled to do? Compels us to do what? It drives us to do what? It controls us to do what? Well, he tells us a little further down in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. He says this, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So he's saying we're compelled by the love of Christ, that same love that caused Jesus to weep for Jerusalem, that same love that caused him to weep for those that hated him, the same love that caused him not just to weep for them, but to die for them. Paul says we're compelled by that love to say to people, as if God were making his appeal through us, to say to people, Please be reconciled to God. To implore is a word that he uses. To plead with people. Be reconciled to God. Come to God. Come to Him. God loves you. Turn your life over to Him. Follow Him. That's what we're compelled to do. My wife and I went to watch a movie this Friday. And I've been looking forward to this movie. And uh, I'll be real honest with you. Sometimes I, I kind of, I'm a little skeptical when it comes to movies with a Christian message because sometimes it can be kind of corny and like. Uh. But this was a, this movie was very well done. And the reason, the reason I wanted to see it was because I know the story. It was a story. The name of the movie is A Case for Christ. If you didn't see it this weekend, I encourage you, go see it and take somebody with you. This is a story of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is, uh, right now he, he teaches at Houston Baptist University. He's a pastor on staff at a church there in Houston as well. He uh, is a former atheist. And so he uh, was saved when uh, he was in Chicago. His wife was actually saved first. He was an atheist. He became angry when she was saved. And so he set out to prove, I read his story years ago, and I'm excited this is a movie now. He set out to prove, because he was an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He set out to prove that, that there was no God, because like I said, he was an atheist. Set out to prove that the resurrection was untrue. And so he began to use the only tools he knew as a journalist, just facts and reason, began to interview people. And what he discovered was that the resurrection is true. And it just bothered him. And, and, but, but the parts of, until he finally came to Christ, but the parts of the story that, and, and I don't know if my wife noticed this, because we were sitting, of course, next to each other. And uh, I was trying not to make a scene, but I was weeping when I saw the part where his wife became a Christian. And when she's pleading with him, and he, you know, he was angry, you know, he turned to alcohol, but when he comes to Christ, it's just like, I wept. Because that's what we're called to do, to plead with people. Come to God. 
the love of Christ compels us to do that. Here, here's the truth. God's love compels us to see with compassion those who reject God and to plead with them to come to God. That's the point of what I'm trying to say this morning. God's love compels us to see not with anger and judgment, but to see with compassion those who reject God and to plead with them to come to God. But here's a problem. Oftentimes, instead of feeling compelled by God's love for the lost, we are repelled by their sinful lives. I can't believe they live that way. I can't believe they do this and they do that. And we, we allow that to repel us. Instead of seeing them with compassion, we desire God's judgment for their sins. Instead of pleading with them to come to God, we push them away through our judgmental attitudes. God's love compels us to plead, to see with compassion and to plead with those who rejected God. Come to God. You know, there's a story and I'm going to uh, share this story with you from the Old Testament, from the book of Second Kings, chapters six and seven. It's a very interesting story. And uh, it's a story of how the city of Samaria on one occasion, was surrounded by, by an enemy king. Now, in those days, when kings went to battle against other people and other cities, you know, they, they could do one of two things. They, they could go against the city. And of course, the cities were, were surrounded by walls, protected by walls. But they could go and just attack the city and try to overrun it, try to force their way in through the gate and, and over, overrun that city. Or... They could surround it. They could siege the city, surround it, and keep anybody from going in or out. Nobody could go out for supplies, for food, for water, nothing. They would surround the city till the city would die a slow death. They would get to the point where they would not no way out. They would either die in there or, or, or maybe they'd, they'd surrender and they'd be killed either way. So what happens in this story in 2 Kings 6 and 7 is that the city of Samaria was besieged by an enemy king. He surrounded the, the city, and as a result, the, the famine, a, a famine emerged, and people began to starve inside the city, inside the walls. They began to starve. So in order to survive, people began to buy and to sell small parts of animals to eat, and they were very expensive. And then it got so bad. This is hard to believe, but this is what happened. It got so bad that the people even turned to cannibalism. Eating their own children because they knew the children were going to die of starvation. The children weren't going to live. They weren't going to make it. So they turned to cannibalism. It was terrible. It was an awful thing. So in the meantime, there were four men who were lepers. And as lepers, they couldn't be in, in the city necessarily, you know, in the center of the city. But they were inside the walls, but they were kind of kept away. And they decided one day... That, you know what, they said, we're here, we can't eat, we're going to die. So they thought, we're going to walk out of the city. And I don't know which of the four came up with the idea. One of them said, let's, let's just go to the enemy camp. Let's just throw ourselves at their mercy. I mean, what do we have to lose? If, if we go out there and they kill us, they shoot us with their arrows and they, they kill us, then we're going to die anyway. We're going to die a slow, agonizing death. We may as well try this and throw ourselves at their mercy. So... I can just picture them walking out of the city and going toward the camp and probably with their hands up. They're, they're going out there and they get there 
And they find out that not only are there no soldiers guarding the, the gates and the, guarding the city, there's nobody around and they, they go toward the camp. And when they get to the camp, they realize that the enemy camp is empty. Nobody's there, no soldiers, no king, nobody. All that's there is their food, their weapons, their silver, their gold. It's like it's totally empty. They left everything behind. And so we find out later what happened is that God caused, God out of compassion for his people in Samaria, God caused that army, the king and, and the soldiers, to hear noises in the night. They heard noises, the noises of a huge army. In fact, armies, they thought it was several armies. They heard chariots, racing, speeding chariots. They heard horses, the sound of horses. And they thought, oh no, there are like multiple armies. The king of Samaria must have called somebody. I mean, they knew he couldn't have called for help because they had surrounded the city. But they, they thought he must have called for help. And all these armies are coming against us. They heard these sounds and they, I mean, they, they ran out. They left everything behind. So now, these four men... And the Bible tells us they gorged themselves. And imagine they haven't, they haven't eaten for months. Uh, and, you know, they haven't had a, a, a good meal for months, maybe a year or more. I don't know how long it was, but they find all this food and, and drink and, and they gorge themselves on this food. They eat and they eat and they eat. And then one of them says, I have an idea. Let's take everything we can, we can carry. Let's take the silver, gold and food and clothes, everything we can. And let's go hide this in a cave somewhere for the future because, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Let's just, let's take care of ourselves and go hide all this. So they start doing all that, carrying st stuff away. But then one of them says, hey, hey, guys, what we're doing is not right. We're not doing right. He, he says, there are people in the city that are dying. They're starving to death. And we have, we have the answer. We have the good news, he said. We have to tell everybody else the good news. And so that's what they ended up doing. They went back. Of course, initially they didn't believe them. But eventually they found out it was true. But when these four men shared, as they said, the good news about the food outside the gates, everyone in the city was saved. Everybody was saved. And I can just picture, the Bible doesn't say this, but I can picture the people when they finally realized it's true. They all came out. They all started eating. I wonder, what were, the, what were these four men doing? Could it be they were... No, off to the side, because they were lepers. Could it be they were off to the side, maybe leaning against a rock and thinking, this is awesome. It's awesome that they're able to eat. I, I better make them feel good, don't you think? Make them feel good that, guys, we did the right thing. We did the right thing. Look at everybody. They needed, look at the kids. Look at those kids eating for the first time in a long time. A good, a good meal. You know, at, at some point in every Christian's life, you realize that you've been blessed and you've been filled with the love of Christ so that you can share it with others. You look around at those who are hungry and those who are hurting and you want them to know the good news about Jesus. So you're willing to do whatever you have to do. You're willing to pull out all the stops. So that people can know about the love of Jesus. Recently, Bill Hybels preached a message at his church in which he shared about two realizations, two epiphanies that he had about evangelism. And he shared these two things. I want to share them with you today. 
These are two epiphanies he said he had about evangelism. The first one is this. He said he realized that the single greatest gift you can never give another human being is an introduction to the God who loves him. This is a gift that changes them internally. It's a gift that, that lasts eternally. We can give our friends many gifts. We can, we can do many things for them. But the single greatest gift you can ever give another person is to introduce them to the God who loves them. And we can do that this week. We can do that this week. Then he said he had another realization. That was this. That every single person you know, every single person you know, would be better off with Christ at the center of their lives. There is not a single person in your life, not your kids, not your siblings, not your parents, not your friends, not your cousins, not your coworkers, not a single person in your life that would not be better off with Jesus at the center of their lives. So what are we waiting for? We know those two things are true. We know that the love of Christ compels us to see lost people with compassion and to plead with them to come to God. But how do we do this? How do we reach our neighbor? How do you reach your neighbor? Let me just finish by giving you this very quick three things. How to reach your neighbor. You start by seeing your friends and family who don't serve God with a heart of compassion. See your friends and family who don't serve God with a heart of compassion. It's not up to us to judge them. Paul says that clearly. It's not up to us to judge those outside the church. So see them with a heart of compassion. Secondly, ask God to give you a vision for what they could be. What they could become if they were to come to God. If they were to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Get a vision for that life. What that life could be like. You know when I was young. When I was a young man growing up. And especially as I started to. Uh, you know began in the ministry. I had a vision for people coming to Christ. I could envision them coming to Christ. I can envision them coming and giving their lives to the Lord. Maybe coming forward and saying a prayer. Maybe weeping. Some people weep when they feel God's presence. And that's very uh, very real and very normal. But I didn't really have a vision for what their lives could be afterwards. But I'm saying get a vision for your family, your friends. See your daughter on fire for God. See your son crazy about serving God. See your neighbor, your co-worker, your family members Serving God with all their hearts. And then thirdly, step boldly into your role as an ambassador for Christ. Step boldly into that role as an ambassador. Someone who longs to see his friends or her friends come to Christ. So they can experience the abundance of life that Jesus came to give them. Folks, we're not doing right if we're not sharing the good news. We're not doing right if we're not inviting people. Here's where the food is. Come here and, and hear God's word. Come here and be fed God's word. Come here. Come to God. Come to Jesus. If we're not doing that, we're not doing right. What would our church look like if we all did what the four lepers did? 
If we all felt like Jesus felt on that Palm Sunday. If we all said what Paul said. More than anything, I want my brothers and sisters to come to Christ. What if we all, like the four lepers said, we're not doing right. And we are going to pull out all the stops. And we're going to make phone calls. And we're going to get on email and, and text. And, and we're going to get on the internet. We're going to get on social media. We're going to invite our friends. I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to go make a visit. What if we all decided to invite everyone who possibly, everybody within our reach, in our circle of influence, to come to God? What kind of church would we be? I think it would be the kind of church God wants every church to be.